Alright, well we're uh, in Genesis chapter 12, if you want to turn there, and the weeks that I'm able to be with you guys, I'm going to try to work through the Abraham narratives, and we started that last time with uh, the Babel story, and so this week we come to Genesis 12, 1 to 9, and this is the famous passage that's often called the call of God, the call of God to Abram, and so uh, we'll pray, and then we'll stand and read it together, so let me pray. Lord, we ask now for help as we come and open your holy word, that you would speak by the Holy Spirit into our hearts through your word, and we ask that in Christ's name, amen. So go stand with me, we'll read Genesis 12, verses 1 to 9. This is God's holy word. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the, to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's holy word. You can be seated. So there are many examples across the Old and the New Testament of God, of God coming down, of God showing up, of God coming to a person or a people and saying, get up, Go, get out, take risks for me, take risks for my mission. And this is what we mean by the call of God. It, it appears over and over again throughout all of the Bible. And you know, this call is probably one of the most important, if not the most important in the whole Bible, because this is the beginning of the people of God. This is, this is our history. This is the history of the church. It's through Father Abram and Abraham that we will see the church being built. He is the father of of nations, and so this is the beginning of God coming to do the mighty works of salvation that we'll read about throughout the rest of the scriptures. And so, what I want to look at with us this morning, you know, there's all sorts of ways to come at this passage, and to do it justice, we would need to spend multiple weeks on it. But what I want to look at is first, what does God do in Abram's life here? How, what, what does the call of God do? And then the second thing would be, how does Abram respond to the call? What is the, what, how does the call of God change Abram from the inside out? And the reason for looking at it that way is because when you come to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the famous roll call of faith there, there's all these different people that are mentioned, right? And then at the end, the writer of Hebrews says, the faith of these men and women is to be commended to us as an example of what true faith looks like. And so we're told that if you're the people that are listed in Hebrews 11, that's an example 
of, of faith, of what faith looks like. And there is nobody in Hebrews 11 that gets ink, that gets text like Abraham. Abraham, Abraham is, gets paragraphs in Hebrews 11 where everybody else is just listed. And so he, he is the father of the faith. John Calvin said he's the greatest example of faith outside of Jesus Christ in the whole of the Bible. And so we come to Abraham and we see the example of faith. So first we'll look at the nature of the call of God, and then secondly, the cost of the call of God. So first, the nature of the call of God. Okay, uh, a couple weeks ago I was here, we looked at the Babel story. And if you've worked through the Babel story before, the basic point of chapter 10 and 11, the Table of Nations and the Babel story, is to say that humankind, at this point in history, is hopelessly lost. Everything has gone dark. Uh, Abram's family, we saw last time, came out of Babel. They lived at the beginning of this passage in Ur and then Haran, and those are cities in the land of Babylon. And so Abram is Babylonian through and through, and there's every indication up to this point that Abram is a pagan. He was not a believer in Yahweh. He was a polytheist. He worshipped many gods. His dad worshipped many gods. Joshua 24, Joshua's preaching to the Israelites, and he says, Terah, the father of Abram, served many gods in the land of Babel. So he grew up in a polytheistic family. He was not a believer in the true God. He was not a good man. We know that because, well, in, in the 1920s, uh, Sir Leonard Woolley, who was a professor at Oxford, went to southern Iraq to the land of Ur, the, where the ancient land of Ur was. And for 12 years, he did an archaeological dig there. And Leonard Woolley was the husband of Agatha Christie, the famous you know, murder mystery novelist. And Agatha Christie wrote a very famous novel in the 1930s called Murder in Mesopotamia. And she writes in her journal that she based murder in Mesopotamia off her husband's archaeological dig in the land of the ancient land of Ur, where Abraham, Abraham was from. And what she says about it, based on her husband's discoveries, is uh, really interesting. She says that uh, it was a very smart, sophisticated ancient city, but at the center of it was pagan temple worship that included evidence of child sacrifice. And we looked at that last time that in this land there's strong evidence through the worship of Molech uh, and later in this area it'll be a god called Kamosh that they were worshipped even through things like sacrifice, that, that form of sacrifice a Abram was not a good man he was called he was called out of the land of Babylon and so at the picture we get at the beginning of chapter 12 Walter Brueggemann one of the great Old Testament commentators of the 20th century says this is a world that is lost, a world in total darkness, a world headed for destruction and ultimate judgment. And look, even if you're an experienced Bible reader and you read the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10, you get to 11 and you see the, the writer Moses starting to hone down in on one single family, you know, you know God's about to do something. God, every time in the Bible we see genealogies and in this single family narrative we know God's about to use his family for something but if you look at 1130 when God hones down in on Abram and Sarai it's, it says Sarai was barren she had no children she could have no children and Brueggemann goes on to say we've been set up for a picture here 
as we come to chapter 12, of no foreseeable future. A land in total darkness, a world that's completely lost, and now barrenness becomes the metaphor in the Old Testament for hopelessness. And so we come here to, there's no hope, it's dark, everything's bare, it's, it's a place of death, and Abram lives in the land of death. That's where we are when we step into 12. And then in verse 1, the Lord speaks and says to Abram, literally, get up from your country. And then in verse 7, he says, I'm going to give you not only a land, but also offspring. God appears. The call of God comes down. God opens his mouth and he speaks. He condescends. And let me just mention three brief lessons that we learn here from this context, from the call of God, from him coming into this place. And the first, the first is that the call of God when it comes is always absolutely gracious. God, God comes and meets the world never in a place where the world is just doing okay, never a place where the people are just doing okay. He comes and speaks and condescends into the domain of darkness every single time. And that, that's what we learn here from the context. He comes to Abram and says, I will make you great. And that's, a, that's ironic. It's a twist because in chapter 11, the people of Babel said, we will make a name for ourselves. We will make ourselves great. And so God comes and says, what, is it, what does it mean to be great? It doesn't mean building a tower into the heavens in order to displace God. It, to be great in this world is when God comes down in the midst of our darkness and speaks to us. And calls us and says, get out of your sin. Get up and go. Get out of this land and go to a new land. When he sends us on mission, when he calls us, that's what he says that it is to be. It is to be great. Now, the second lesson here is not only is the call of God absolutely gracious every time, but the call of God is also absolutely powerful. And Charles Spurgeon has a great sermon on Genesis chapter 12. And this is what he says. Uh, God comes and says to Abram, get out. And Abram gets out. Why? Because the call of God is divinely applied and enforced. It is effectual. God does with his speech what he means to do when he speaks. And you know, this, what we're seeing here is one of the early examples of what, you know, in theology we call God's all-powerful, effectual calling. It's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to him at night. And Nicodemus says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. You've got, you, the Holy Spirit, the wind, has to blow over you and change you from the inside out if you want to be saved. I mean, that, that's Jesus describing the effectual call. This, what we're reading about here in Genesis 12, 1, is God's effectual call. It's what Paul meant. In Ephesians 5, when Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine upon you. When he says, Wake up, God has to wake you up. He has to shake you. That's the effectual call. And so what we, what we see, thirdly, is that every single one of us, what this passage is pointing us to, is that every single one of us needs a personal call, an effectual call from the living God. That every single one of us needs the voice of God to speak to us, the wind to blow, 
and change our hearts from the inside out. That we, it's often, you know, if you pick up a, a systematic theology, and they'll say we need an external call and an internal call. Every single one of us. You know, what, what's the external call? The external call is what we're doing right now. It's when a preacher, it's when a, it's when a friend comes and says the word of God to you, speaks the facts of the gospel to you. You know, the, the external call goes in your ear and into your mind. But you need the internal call, too. You know, an internal call is when the Holy Spirit takes the facts of the gospel and moves them from your head to your heart. It changes you from the inside out. We have to hear the gospel from the outside in and then have it change us from the inside out. That's the external call and the internal call. Our heads and our hearts have to be changed. And that means, that means it's not enough to be... It's not enough to be a mere member of an environment or a culture of the external call. I, you know, all of you live, well, I think most of you at least, live in the Jackson wider metro and some of you farther than that. But look, if you, if you know the history of Jackson, you know that if you, if you grew up in Jackson and you were born in, you know, in Bellhaven and Fondren in Northeast Jackson, you live off Culbywood, Ridgewood, one of those places like that. You're a Jackson person, and what that means is that you're probably you're probably a Presbyterian. You know, that's what it means if you grow up in one of those areas. And that that means that you've heard the call your whole life. Most of you probably have grown up in church of an environment, an external call that comes through an environment. But if you were born in South Louisiana, you know, if you were born in New Orleans, chances are the you would you would probably you might be Catholic. Right? And in context and geography and environment and all these things are mere calls, external calls determined by cultural membership. Right? And what this passage is telling what this passage is telling us is that we need more than that. More than an external call that, that comes through an environment, a culture, a religion that we are a part of. We we need a personal call from God when the Holy Spirit comes and speaks to our hearts and changes us from the inside out. That's what's happening here in Abram's life, where we are shaken, where we come to terms with ourselves, where we encounter our own sin, where we, you know, you know that you've heard the call of God when you start to lose your consumer mentality towards a consumer religion. Where it's more, it's more than just about attendance and being a part of an environment and a culture and carrying on the tradition of a family. When it's more than that. That's when you know you've heard the, the call of God. Uh, do you remember, the, have you heard the story of Thomas of Becket? He's a, one of the great Christian figures in, in church history. He was a 12th century priest, Catholic priest in England. And Thomas of Becket famously had a great relationship with Henry II, the king of England at the time. And you know, Thomas was a professional priest, Henry was the king, and they had grown up together. And essentially, Thomas and Henry were buds. They were, I mean, essentially they were drinking buddies in the royal court. And Thomas was professional priest, clergy, but in every way as corrupt as King Henry II. And they spent all their time together and hung out together. And the Archbishop of Canterbury in the middle of the 12th century dies. And King Henry II has a great idea. He's going to take Thomas of Becket, his best buddy, his, this priest, and make him appoint him 
as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And, it, you know, Henry II is thinking, if I do this, then there's no way the church can hold me accountable. There's no way the church, the church can come to me and say, you've got to change. You've got to live your life this way. You've got to rule the people of England in any particular way. I will have authority completely over the church because Thomas of Becket will be the archbishop. And he's my buddy. He's the same as me. We think the same way. We live the same way. Well, if you know the story, you know that Thomas got into the archbishop's seat. He was, he was ordained into that office. And at first, he was shaken by the fact that he didn't qualify. He knew that he was in a position he didn't deserve. And it, eventually, it became more than that. Eventually, Thomas Becket, eventually Thomas Becket was shaken by God. He was changed. I mean, radical conversion. From the inside out, the Holy Spirit came and changed his heart completely. And, and overnight, he became a different person. And he went back to King Henry and said, Henry, I love you, but the kingdom, your rule, your practices, your ethics, you don't know the gospel. And he started to talk to Henry, and Henry hated him for it. Hated him because, because of what he was saying. And so Henry ordered an assassination on Thomas of Becket very famously. And it's well known that when, when the assassins came for Becket to murder him, that he looked up and he, he cried out before his death, Oh, poor Henry, Father, forgive him. And, and, you know, Thomas looked a lot like Jesus on the cross in that moment. The only difference between Thomas Becket and King Henry II was that God had come down and spoken through the Holy Spirit to one of the two of them. God had come down and changed Thomas from the inside out. And there, there are a number of times we see in the Bible God coming in and doing exactly that. We see Father Abram being called out, being changed. Here we see Moses at the burning bush being told, leave paganism behind. Leave the worship of the Egyptian gods behind. Go get my people out of Egypt. And you go to the New Testament, you see Paul the Apostle being kicked off of his horse and blinded by an encounter with Jesus Christ. Changed Forever, but, but look, sometimes the call of God is nothing more than when Jesus Christ walks up to a fisherman and says, Leave your nets behind and follow me. It, it's not extraordinary, it's, 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 as, simple as, it's as simple as that. It, it, that's the call of God. And, and so the question that this passage brings us to ask is Have you heard it? Has it shaken you up? Has it shaken you out of complacency and consumer religion, out of boredom with the Christian gospel that you've heard from an environment over and over again throughout your life? Has look, God said, have you heard it? Well, repent, believe, turn to Christ, change your habits. This is what Paul, Peter, the apostles say. That that means you you've heard it, you you you've accepted it, you've you've changed because of it. Now, look. Secondly, how can you know then? If you've heard the call of God in your life. If God's done this work in your heart. And you can look back at Abram's life and how he responds to the call of God here. And see, see the example of Abram. Hebrews 11, 24 tells us he is an example of great faith. Uh, John Calvin, John Calvin, if you read through any of Calvin's corpus, um, Calvin was overwhelmed with the Abraham story. He refers to it constantly throughout but his famous institutes and 
in his commentaries. He comes back to Abram over and over again. And this is what he says about him in one very famous passage. We ought to esteem Abraham as one equal to a hundred thousand if we consider his faith. Which is set before us in the Bible as the best model of believing in all the scriptures. To be children of God, we must be reckoned as members of his tribe, Genesis 12, the tribe of Abraham. Now, as for the experiences of his life, when he is first called by God's command in Genesis 12, 1, he's taken away from his country, from his parents, from his friends. He's considered, these things were considered by men to be the sweetest things in life. And it's as if God deliberately intended to strip him of all life's delights to test his faith. When the call of God comes in our lives, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit is brought down on us. It, it, it does it, Jesus does his work on us. We are a person is changed from the inside out. There is radical surrender. And so let's close our time today by seeing three things that the call of God does to a person. And you can see it right here in Abram's life. And the first thing is this. When the call of God comes into our life, it disrupts a life of comfort and complacency and creates a life of unknowns and uncertainty. The, the call of God disrupts complacency and brings in unknowns and uncertainty. And you see that in verse 1, God comes to Abram and says, literally in Hebrew, get out from your country. You know, you're going to lose the sweet things of life, as Calvin put it just a moment ago. And when Abram wants to know where he is to go, did you notice that he says, a land that I will show you in the future. Abram does not know at this point where God is sending him. It's a complete mystery to him. And all God comes in and says is, I've come for you, I'm pulling you out of paganism, I'm changing your broken heart, and now get up and get out of the land. I'm about to do something in your life. And he doesn't know where he's going. He just gets up and he goes. And it, you know, further on, God just comes in in verse 7 and says, I'm about to raise up an entire people group out of you. I'm going to raise up the people of God out of your genealogical loins. You're going to be the father of the nations. And Abram knows that his wife cannot bear kids. And so he's saying, how, how are, you're sending me to a land that I don't know, and you're telling me I'm going to be the father of the nation, a nation that I can't, have, where are you going to send me? How are you going to do this? And he doesn't get an answer. God, when God's call comes into our life, he, he shakes us up out of complacency. And sometimes he does stuff that we did not expect. And Abram was ready. And the people of God have to be ready to hear the call of God no matter what it is. And in and, and 12 6, the journey that gets described here, and 12. And, him passing through the land to the place at Shechem from Ur. That's 600 miles. And it's covered in a single sentence. And Abram, we're told, is 75 years old. And so at 75 years old, God sends him on a 600-mile journey through the desert, most of it. And when he finally, when, when he finally ends it, he comes to a place... Uh, he comes to a place that's well known uh, throughout the Bible. It's a, it's a, the Oak of Moray. It's right between Ebal and Gerizim, and we see here in this moment the second thing that God's teaching, teaching us about the call. The call, the call means that we not only have to be ready, to, we, it not only has to shake us up out of our complacency, 
It means that we are being called to be in the world, but not of it. That there, that there is a call here to a kind of separation. When, Moses, when Abram gets to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, to the Oak of Moray, as it's called, this is a place Old Testament scholars will know, well known as the oracle tree of, Canaan, of the Canaanite religion. Okay, so at, at this place, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites would gather to hear prophecies spoken about, about pagan religion. They would hear, come to hear God speak. God says, get up, Abram, get out. He sends him on a 600-mile journey, and he sends him to this oracle tree. Yeah, he goes right into the heart of paganism. He goes right to the place where pagan religion is grounded. This is the script. This is where the Bible of paganism was written, the Oak of Moray. And he comes and he plants an altar to Yahweh to claim this place for the living God. And what that means is that God calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. He, he sends them right into the heart of pagan territory, to the place of the prophecy of the pagans. And there he, he preaches the gospel of Yahweh. It's, this is Paul going up the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17 into the heart of Athens to tell the philosophers, the sophists, about the gospel. You see, he's saying, you know, Calvin put it this way, Abram was told, leave your kindred, leave your family, leave the culture that you knew, leave the things that you had grown too much in love with. Get, out, get away from that. But don't exit the culture altogether. This is not a monastic call. He went into the heart of the city of paganism and planted an altar for Yahweh. And the commentators will note that after that, you see him going around city to city, Shechem, Ai, down to the Negev, town to town, and planting these altars. You know, he, he's, he's, not, he's not getting away from the people, from the pagans. He's changed ethically from the inside out. He, this is not a monastic call. This is a call to moral separation and incredibly active mission amongst, amongst the people of all cultures. This is what the call of God calls us to. And the, In other words, one way it's often put is this is the call to be a public, not a private Christian. Uh, you, know, you know the difference... We've been wrestling with this ever since the time of the Enlightenment. Public Christianity and private Christianity. Private Christianity is what happens when we are devoted to personal religion. You know, we'll read our Bibles, we'll spend time with God in our homes in the mornings, but there is there is absent from our life any public witness. You know, there's absent from our life any relationships with non-Christians where we're talking about the gospel. It, and when, when you're around the public, a true public Christian, a person that's been changed by the call of God and shaken up and unsettled, you know, where, you know who they are. You could probably name the ones that are in this room because those kind of people unsettle you. You know, they, they make awkward conversations and mix. They, they're the people that shake you up because they're, you know, as we used to put it in my Southern Baptist days, these are the people that are on fire for Jesus, right? I mean, they're. They're out doing public Christianity. And the call of God shakes you up. It makes you a public Christian, not a private Christian. It sends you, it separates you from the world morally and sends you straight into the heart of the world in terms of presence, faithful presence. That's what we see. Now, thirdly, and, and finally, we see here that the call of God means a life of sojourn or a life of mission. Uh, <clears throat> Verse 2 
it's regularly noted by Old Testament scholars that this is an ambiguous translation, this very famous uh, phrase where he says, "Go or uh, I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So that little phrase, so that you will be a blessing. Um, it's just as e- easily read like this. Uh, I will make your name great. Now, go be a blessing. In other words, this is actually better read as a commission, not, not just a passive piece of information. This is God saying, I'm making your name great. You go be the blessing. Go be a blessing upon it. In other words, this is Abram. You know, the call of God when it comes into our lives, it sends us on a mission. It's, it's, it's simple. And what we're talking about here as we wrap up is simply Christian ministry. You know, if you've heard the call of God, if the Holy Spirit has changed you from the inside out, if you've been born again, John chapter 3, then you are a minister of the gospel. You are, you are on Christian ministry. Professional ministers make up nothing but a tiny fraction of Christian ministers. Every single person called by God is to be a minister of the gospel. And God comes and says, you are a steward. That's the metaphor most often we see in the gospels of, of the ministry. Paul puts it that way in Corinthians. And he says, you have two things that you are to steward. The fact of the gospel, the gospel message, and the gift of the spirit that you've been given. And so if you've heard the call of God, that's your charge. That's your commission. You're to be on mission, taking the fact of the gospel and the gift of the Holy Spirit that you've been giving, given and doing Christian ministry. And that's what we see Abram doing all over this passage. He, he travels, like I mentioned, all over the cities, all over the communities, planting the altar of Yahweh in the midst and the heart of all these pagan societies, adding people to the kingdom day by day. Now, Tim Keller's um, really helpful book uh, on self-forgetfulness, one of the things he mentions about this passage is he says, what we learn here is that you will never be as happy as you can be. You will never have the kind of joy that you were made to have until you embrace your mission to the point of personal loss. So one of the key things Keller's saying in that book is that the Bible teaches that we will never have the joy that we were made for. We will never have the happiness that we're meant to have until we embrace the mission of God in our own lives to the point of actually of where it costs us something. And he gets that from John chapter 17 where Jesus prays and says, Father, as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. So there's our commission. And I'm saying all these things so that they would have the fullness of joy. So Jesus says, Lord, you sent me to the world, and I'm sending them now, and I'm sending them to do the mission so that they would know what it is to have joy in their lives. And that means that being on mission for God in the way he made us is the key to having joy. It's the key, it's, it's the key to having happiness. Because, look, the one man who was most fully on mission for God in all of history the one man who was so on mission for God that he was willing to lose everything, he was the happiest man that's ever lived. And, you know, when he, when he, you know, to be on mission for God, you first, of course, have to know that God's been on mission for you since the beginning of time. And he's been on mission for you to the point where he came into the world, the Son of God came into the world, and he went, he, he lost everything. He went into ultimate darkness. He went to the cross. 
He he get, he went in in our sin, bearing our sin. He went into the pit of hell for us. And at this very same time, even in that moment, Hebrews four, it was joy in front of his eyes that got him there. It was the joy that was set before him that made him enjoy the cross. And so we see that the man most on mission in all of history for us was the happiest man who's ever lived. And what we're being told here is that if we truly want to know joy in this life, we have to be, we have to be willing to hear God's commission through the call to take it to the point of, of personal loss for the sake of, for the, sake of the missio dei, the mission of, the mission of God. And so God says to every one of us this morning, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, the call of God, and the light of Christ will shine on you and shine through you as you step into His mission. Let's pray and ask God to help us do it. Lord, we ask for help now that you would make us a people who have been changed. We need Oh, Spirit, you to speak. There, there could be some here today that have never heard you speak by the Spirit in their hearts. We pray for that. We pray, Lord, for the rest of us that have, that you would shake us up and break our complacency and make us into people on mission, bearing the banner of the gospel, using the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we, we long to be these people and to have, Jesus, what you call the fullness of joy. And so we ask for it now in Christ's name. Amen.